everyone. I imagine all of you, like my family, saw quite a few hours of the protracted week-long and then weekend celebration of the centennial of the Statue of Liberty. Probably you heard the President's speech and saw some of the tall ships of many of the nations that sent deputations here, the hundreds and hundreds of yachts and smaller vessels in New York Harbor, and the huge big ships from some of the major nations of the world that still use them for training vessels for their naval cadets that were slowly going by in a parade of stately dignity that reminds us of the days of wooden ships and iron men during the days of Drake and Frobisher and Anson. And it was really an emotional and ebullient and exciting experience just to watch some of that on television. We had a little lesser celebration out where I live. We had about... Uh, well, there was a 35, I don't know how many people were there, about 35 relatives out there yesterday for a 4th of July celebration, and we're barbecuing steaks and chicken and then sat out on the side porch and watched the Emerald Bay fireworks display in the evening. And some of ours got out their own fireworks and barely avoided burning the house down. We were thankful for that. But we watched the skyrockets going up and all of that. I remember as a boy the 4th of July being a very exciting day, but I never knew exactly what it meant. Little by little in school we learned about something called the Declaration of Independence and about the Constitution of the United States and men like Adams and Jefferson and Washington and some of the signatories of that famous document that gave the United States the liberty and the freedom that we all enjoy. Finally, when I was 16, I was able to take a trip with my father, covering 36,000 miles in three months in an old 1941 DeSoto on a baptizing tour that left Eugene, Oregon, went all the way down into California, across from Nevada through the desert, clear down into Texas to Catula and down to Brownsville, and then down into Florida, all the way to St. Augustine, then up US-1, all the way to Portland, Maine, through all of New England states, and then back all the way down into Texas, and up through Arkansas to Iowa, and all the way through Nebraska, and across North and South Dakota, until we got back to Eugene, Oregon, across Idaho. And we had covered 40 of the 48 states, and traveled 36,000 miles, and that was the trip on which my brother Dick and I were doing almost all of the driving, and I was 16 in 1946, and I learned to drive in an old 1941 DeSoto, in all kinds of road conditions and all kinds of weather. But it was also the first time that I saw many of our national monuments. The White House of the Confederacy, Monticello, the home of Jefferson, and of course the Statue of Liberty. We took the ferry across and climbed up. You took an elevator to the base, which is about 150 feet. It's 305 feet all the way to the top. And then we climbed up the circular staircase, my brother and I, all the way to the crown and then peered out the windows. We'll take care of about 35 people up there on a scaffolding. And you can see the old rusted iron and everything inside of it. So as I watched this on television, all of those memories came flooding back. Not only at that moment, but at the moments when I have seen the statue in New York Harbor, such as the very first morning on the second inaugural flight of jet travel. My father and I were on a United Airlines, uh, American Airlines it was, 707, in 1959. The very first inaugural flight in that same aircraft, the only operational airplane that day, had gone from L.A. to New York and then returned to L.A. and was going back to New York overnight, and we were aboard it. The very thrill of seeing an aircraft take off without propellers for the first time was exciting. And being overnight on the airplane, but then with the dawn barely coming up over the horizon, the sun shining the first rays on those huge skyscrapers, and then us 
slowly banking left to see Manhattan and Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Jamaica, and all of it laid out below us, and the Statue of Liberty there in what is now Liberty Island, formerly Bedloe's Island, and uh, remembering the climb up. And then many times after that, too many times to count, I suppose, flying my own airplane, a Falcon jet or other aircraft that belonged to the church corporation. I say my own, but I flew it for about nine years, and flying low over the Statue of Liberty and making approaches into either LaGuardia or Kennedy Airport or over at uh, Teterboro, and seeing that tremendous statue there in the harbor. A lot of us probably don't know what it is she's carrying in her left hand. You saw what's in the right arm. You've seen the new sheath of gold that is there. You probably saw the ceremony of President Reagan lighting up the torch, and it was very exciting. But do you know what she's carrying in her other arm? It's merely a tablet, and enscrolled on the tablet is the date of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776. But do you know what it is, that funny-looking thing at her feet? At her feet is a broken shackle. And most people, I don't think I saw one news commentator any, at any time, I don't think I saw any reference to either the tablet in her arm or the shackle at her feet. But the symbolism of that is obvious. The broken shackle is the symbolism of the breaking of slavery, of the oppression of foreign governments and of people by the millions who have come to the United States to enjoy freedom, which of course is exactly the same word as liberty. Now, I've spoken on the subject before about America's wars, about the war of liberation or the war of revolution that we fought, that our ancestors fought back in 1776, the War of 1812 against Great Britain, the Spanish-American War, the First World War, and then the Second World War, when millions of Americans steamed away from New York Harbor or underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and fought, again, the war that was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Every time I think of some of us who take freedom and liberty for granted, especially some immigrants who have come into this country who have exercised their right and their privilege of dissent to the point of actual riots, the destruction of property, of demonstrations against the federal government, including Iranian students demonstrating in Houston during the very day when the Iranian government illegally held Americans hostage. And you think in one sense that as a red-blooded American you would like to see these people handled rather roughly. And yet you have to think again of the fact that without that precious right of dissent, even for foreigners within our boundaries, we would not be the kind of a nation we are. I've done a little bit of study and research into the question, the subject of liberty. There are two basic kinds of liberty. There's political liberty that we all enjoy and without which this work could not be done, could not be accomplished. And political liberty is guaranteed by laws. It's upheld by a system of courts, the courts that actually have jurisdiction over the President of the United States of America, that could actually impeach the President, as has been done almost. He resigned before it was a fait accompli during the Nixon administration of this country. Have you all forgotten that little smorgasbord of knowledge that we accumulated in high school when you got a bit and a piece of this and that and the other thing about the Magna Carta? I read an extensive article about that to refresh my memory again this morning of how about a fifth of all of the barons in England gathered together and actually had to occupy the city of London during the reign of King John III and to bring him to heel. 
Because John the Third, like an awful lot of despotic, spoiled, sensuous, depraved, petulant, egocentric, spiteful, lustful, insatiable kings, could pillage, rob, steal, lie, rape, and plunder, could even murder, without fear of any retaliation whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he had murdered or procured the murder of his own nephew, who was Arthur, the Duke of Brittany, and later on, some months later, in some social event, when the wife of a baron made some indiscreet reference to the crime, which was well known, John III heard about it, and then in a vindictive spate of anger and of vengeance proceeded to crush her family's power, drove her husband and her youngest son into exile, clapped the baroness and her eldest son in a dungeon, and starved them to death. He was a lovely man. The millions would gather in the town squares and say, Long live the king. But underneath, he was a depraved despot who didn't really deserve to live. So eventually, when only one-fifth, and the others were sort of neutral, they didn't even get into it one way or the other, of the land barons during that day got together and drew up a very lengthy and somewhat poorly organized and rather wordy document called the Great Charter, or the Magna Charta, been shortened down in history to the Magna Carta. Eventually, they forced King John to sign it in a meadow between Windsor and Staines along the banks of the Thames River clear back in 1215, on June 15th of that year. And that document, if you would study it, is the first time in history that the concept of the rights of an individual, the concept of personal dignity regardless of caste, of privilege, of rank, of birth, or of station, is the inalienable right of every human individual. Down through the years thereafter, even for a couple of hundred years, it was continually reconfirmed by a battery of lawyers who would argue and endlessly reconstruct and rewrite and draft legal treatises about the meaning of certain phraseology of the Magna Carta. And then down through English history, if you were to study it, there were more than 44 times where that document had to be dusted off and dragged out and some king forced to take a second look at it and to reconfirm all over again his belief in it to avoid a massive uprising of the British populace. And many monarchs in England strove to virtually negate the principles of the Magna Carta by simply ignoring what it said. Some of those who began to write legal treatises in the 15 and 1600s were lawyers who were quite astute in a growing fraternity of legalism, or the, the legal fraternity, which had to do with the interpretation of law. There was a man named Sir Edward Cook, who lived from 1552 to 1634, who was one of the most well-versed in the Magna Carta, and wrote some very interesting treatises on it. There was a boy who was born in England. His family came to the United States, and he came along with them. His father was a carpenter, and he grew up in the state of Virginia one of the first colonies of that time. His name was Thomas. They called him Tommy as a boy, like you might expect. And he read extensively as he pursued the legal profession, first in a lot of private schools and later on in the College of William and Mary, where he learned from William, after whom the college was named himself. His last name was Jefferson, and he studied very extensively the legal treatises written by Sir Edward Coke on the Magna Carta, particularly one clause of it, chapter 39, which states, and I quote, 
that no man can be arrested, imprisoned, deprived of his property, exiled, or in any way destroyed except by legal judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. End of quotation from a very famous document from the Magna Carta. The thinking of Thomas Jefferson was very heavily influenced by those British lawyers who wrote treatises about the meaning of the Magna Carta. And so, of course, the roots of the American concept of freedom go back, ultimately, to the Magna Carta, a fabulous document, and I happen to think that Almighty God had a hand in the drafting of that document, in the drafting of many treatises having to do with it, in the influence of the minds of the founding fathers of this country, in the drafting of the documents which give us the freedoms that we take for granted so often, and of course which gave me the freedom to do what I did yesterday and what I did this morning and what I'm doing right now, which I could not do in Poland, which I could not do in more than 137 nations. I could stand here and name one after the other if I had a map which I could not do in China or North Korea or North Vietnam or in many nations in Africa, could not happen. There are countries all over the world where the simple exercise of you people coming here with no one stopping you at a roadblock without wondering, have I got my national identity card? Uh, can I prove who I am? And can I prove the political party to which I owe allegiance? And uh, have I got all of my documents for the automobile and the insurance policies and everything there? You don't have to go through police road checks. There was no one outside. There aren't any armed men patrolling each bridge, each hydroelectric station, each government building, the way there are in Spain or in France or in Italy or the Carabinieri or everywhere. But in the United States of America, as long as you obeyed the laws, or if you didn't obey them today, you didn't get caught. And you have to be careful over July 4th weekend because there are a lot of people dying on Texas highways, especially motorcycle and single automobile accidents I heard in the news coming in. So you ought to obey those laws. But there again, that's up to you. You had the privilege of either obeying them or disobeying them to get here today. So the privilege, not only of the freedom of movement, of the exercise of free speech or of religion, a free press, of dissent. These are absolute priceless privileges and freedoms that I think we do take for granted. I know when I was at Anzio and I wandered out there in acre after acre after acre of tens of thousands of little white crosses, some of them with the Star of David, neatly arranged in rows. I think somewhere around 30 or 40,000 young Americans aged 17 and a half to about 24 or 5 who died in the Anzio beachhead in the campaign to take Italy and uh, walk among them and read all these names from all over the United States of America, Jewish names, Polish names, Czechoslovakian names, British and Scot and Dutch-sounding names, and sometimes, of course, obviously names like Jackson, Washington. You might suspect that there might have been black men. And just by the tens of thousands, and of course the huge big military graveyard in Luxembourg, where I've also been, where General Patton lies buried, and then at Arlington National Cemetery, where I've been many times, and to see there the rows of undulating terrain of tens of thousands of American dead all the way back to the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the War of 1812, and all the wars that have been fought, including the war in Vietnam. The huge military graveyard in the Philippines, where again thousands of American dead lie. And then once in a while I see like some of the people during the 60s when they exercised so freely the right of dissent against the Vietnamese War, taking for granted almost churlishly the attitude that it was owed them to dissent 
or to in some way interrupt the flow of traffic or perhaps to occupy a public building or to have a stage to sit in the public bank or to sit in in the, hall, in the halls of the uh, courthouse or what have you or to say this is a public sidewalk you cannot order me off this sidewalk to some woman who doesn't want them demonstrating in her front yard and there was a sort of an arrogance about this liberty or this freedom that they were so quick to defend and to say I have this freedom I have this liberty there didn't seem to be the acknowledgement of who it was to pay what kind of a price to give them the freedom or the liberty that they had there was no humility in connection with the freedom or the liberty the very first place in the Bible where the word liberty is ever used is in Leviticus 25 and verse 10 and believe it or not it merely had to do with one occasion out of 50 years when the citizens of that country of the nation of Israel could actually have a proclamation of liberty and it had more to do with the economy than it did of anything else it certainly was not liberty in the sense that we exercise it today in Leviticus 25 and verse 10 it says you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty the first place where that word is ever used in the Bible and you can look it up in the Hebrew it has an interesting meaning the word is deror or derora from an unused root in the Hebrew language it means to move rapidly or spontaneity of outflow or it means clear just clear or freedom or moving rapidly and sponta uh, spontaneously an outflowing that is spontaneous is the root in the Hebrew word and this is the first place it is used it goes on to talk about the release of debts and returning every man to his family and his possession every 50th year on the cycle of the land Sabbaths and so on in Psalm 119 45 is another place where that word is used there are many of them in the Bible I think something like 37 of them in all and I'll read only a couple or three of them but in Psalm the 119th Psalm and verse 45 we read of one place where the where David says I will walk at liberty and the margin has a different meaning of the word it says at large or meaning wherever I will or freely for I seek thy precepts but notice what it says in a preceding word so shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever remember the words in our famous anthem one of the songs to America that says confirm thy good in brotherhood thy liberty in law to confirm thy liberty in or through law this is not a nation of anarchy it is a nation of law a system of law a system of order the three divisions of government that we know and are so familiar with the House of Representatives the United States Senate the legislative executive and judiciary branches of government the various departments in all of those various government agencies or bureaus that help keep the United States and maintain it preserve and protect those liberties that we enjoy so long as we observe the laws that continue to guarantee them he said in verse 46 I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings despots absolute monarchs and will not be ashamed and I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved David was a man who said oh how I love your law the Ten Commandments are the greatest expression of freedom and of liberty for every individual and for any society collectively that have ever been written 
because they are the commands or the requirements of a man to acknowledge and to worship his God and also to conduct himself toward his neighbor in exactly the fashion he wishes so fervently his neighbor would conduct himself toward that individual. What kind of a neighbor would you like? One which does not encroach upon your property, does not lust after and try to seduce your wife, does not beat, speak evil of or toward, in some way uh, torment your children, does not dig a ditch so that your ox will break its leg, it does not use his pellet gun or twenty-two to kill your sheep or your cattle. Uh, he does not uh, take his tractor and uh, do wheelies in your front yard. Uh, your neighbor doesn't shoot his rifle uh, into your windows at night. He doesn't blow up your outhouse. Uh, his kids don't terrorize your, your neighborhood to soap your windows and tie the cow to the front door and knock on it so when you open the door the cow walks in on Halloween. How would you like your neighbor to conduct himself toward you? Well, you can have all these idyllic ideas. You would like to be left at peace. You would like your neighbor not to hurt you or da damage or destroy your property or diminish the value of your home, not to set fire to your roof, uh, whatever. You, you want your neighbor to leave you alone, leave you at peace, leave you at liberty. Well, your neighbor wants you to do that to him. And the Ten Commandments expresses how that ought to be done. Isaiah 61, verse 1, is a poignant example of the use of that word in the Bible because it conjures up for me visions of people who have been in slavery. And, of course, the Israelites were never allowed to forget that because God continually reminded them of it. This is the scripture that Jesus actually read in the synagogue at Capernaum, where he was, in Nazareth, I beg your pardon, when he asked the keeper of the scrolls to give him the scroll of Isaiah, and he unfolded it to this particular place and began to read the Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That's found in Luke 4.18, where this is repeated. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now that, for me, conjures up visions of Auschwitz, of Dachau, of Treblinka, of Maidanach, of Buchenwald, of Belsen and of so many more of the pictures of those emaciated Jewish and other political refugees who would grasp the muddy boots of American servicemen who overran those torture camps during World War II. And those people realized, I am saved. I think in the last campaign when I was in Chicago, or maybe it was Milwaukee, another gentleman who had actually been in one of those camps as a young boy came up and introduced himself to me, and I've met several of them back in the 50s. When I was doing the radio program, a couple of ladies came into the booth to begin to listen to the program, and one of them showed me the tattoo mark on her forearm, and she had been in Auschwitz as a young teenager and began to relate to me some of the horrifying experiences that she had had. I have never in my entire life been in jail. I've never even spent the night there, thank God. I've never been in jail. I have never in my entire life known the meaning of any impedimenta to my personal exercise of volition except for the four years that I was in the Navy. And even there I had a lot of liberties. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, when they gave you time off, they didn't call it time off. They didn't say, you just got time off. Or they didn't say it was a vacation. They called it liberty. So whenever we had liberty to get off the ship or off the base, we went out and we did whatever we wanted to do and went where we wanted to go with whomsoever we wanted to go and got back whenever they told us to get back. 
within certain parameters, or else there were certain requirements that you had to undergo to make up for that lost time, like marching interminably with a rifle in no particular direction just to put in a number of hours until you nearly got exhausted because you had created some infraction or other. But I so well remember the many, many times in my young life when I was taught about liberty and the argument I had with an elderly gentleman when I was totally in the wrong because we would torment his dog, and his dog would come out like a raving maniac to the length of his chain and try to take off our leg. We resented the dog. We were very thankful for the chain. And so we would stand comfortably at the end of the chain, hoping that it held the dog, and just drive this dog out of his mind by making all sorts of cat calls and signs and everything, you know, to the dog. The old man finally would come out waving a rake. And we would chirp with the little voices, We're on a public sidewalk. You can't touch us. This is our sidewalk, you know. And tell him that it's our sidewalk. You can't chase us off your property. It did scare us pretty bad sometimes, though, when he came roaring out of there with a rake because we thought maybe he would get on the sidewalk with us. It never occurred to us that it was his sidewalk, too. But uh, we did run eventually when he got close enough. We would run. But we would first make our declaration of independence. We would state that we had liberty and he couldn't chase us off of that sidewalk. Well, there was another aspect to liberty that I didn't learn in those early years that I've learned since. Not just political liberty, but moral liberty. Liberty is so defined in the dictionaries of the encyclopedias. Political liberty and moral liberty. Now, moral liberty has to do with the decision-making power of the individual, or what we call free moral agency, the freedom to form your own opinions and the freedom to make decisions irrespective of restraints or consequences, being willing to accept the consequences for your, your decision, but certainly at absolute liberty to make that decision. One of the greatest statements Jesus ever made is contained in John 8:32, when he said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And there he was not speaking of political freedom because he said it to a nation of slaves. He was speaking of moral freedom. In John 8, 36, it says, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, meaning giving you that truth, you shall be free indeed. I read once of an ancient sage in Warsaw in the ghetto who, knowing that the Germans were closing in and they were going to be sent to the camps, told his son of what they could do to his body, of what they could do to their possessions and their home and their family, but he instilled in him the concept that no matter what they do, no matter the privations, the hardship, or even the torture or the death by hanging the garrote or the firing squad, they can never control your mind. Never yield your spirit, son, he said. They can take your body. They can take your property. And they can even take your life. But they cannot seize or possess your spirit. As I look at the phenomenon of people who are all too willing to become slaves to sin, slaves to despotism, even inside the United States, the freest country that has ever been, I ponder that very question. Why would we so quickly wish to yield control of our mind to some other source? Why would we yield the control of our conscience? to a despotic leader, be he military, political, or of a social fraternity, or a club, or even a spouse. Some people are in complete, total, 
quavering submission or subjection, virtually fear, to a spouse, to the leader of a political party, and especially to a leader of a spiritual organization called a church. A first part of the oath that is administered as it was by Chief Justice Berger to thousands of Americans that were just now sworn in over the 4th of July is, do you hereby relinquish any alliance? Do you renounce any fealty to all foreign potentates or powers? And you must, before you take the oath of allegiance to the American flag and government and the defense of its constitution before all enemies, whether foreign or domestic, you must first relinquish and renounce any fealty to any foreign potentate so that you owe no fealty to some other force or power outside of the United States of America. So there's no conflict of interest there. And by the time you take freely the oath of citizenship, you pledge allegiance to your new homeland, the United States of America, and you do so without vacillation, without any uh, confusion involving some foreign potentate. In a sense, the oath of citizenship in Jesus Christ begins with a renunciation of your allegiance to Satan the devil, to this world around you, and then your pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and to the laws of Almighty God, so far as your moral liberty is concerned. Taking a look at a few scriptures with regard to that, in Romans 6, verse 12 through 14, and there are a great number of them, by the way, that bear on this. I just want to touch a couple to refresh our minds on it. Romans, the sixth chapter, and beginning in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Now we know that appetite, that sin, habit, custom, influential people, some of our own personal appetites can get control of us. We know that alcoholism is such an appetite. We know the smoking problem is such a problem or an appetite that can actually become a narcotic without which people cannot live. That includes coffee, tea, includes uh, certain soft drinks, includes anything that can actually become a habit to which you are temporarily in some way or another in your life uh, giving control into some substance or other which is mind-altering or alters your physical state. And maybe those are comparatively uh, harmless except that they may take a toll on your health, they may age you prematurely, they may rob you of your sleep, they may cause cancer, they may do something like that, but maybe they're not that big a thing from the standpoint of a hugely moral sin of some sort. But here he is saying in verse 13, neither yield ye your members, and he's talking physically, that's talking about your human physical members, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your, your sensual perceptions, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you know the original pure meaning of the Greek, as you will read in the interlinear or the diaglot, is even a far more forceful statement, and I like it better. Moffat lists it this way. For sin shall not lord it over you. Sin shall not lord it over you. Sin is not to be your overlord. You are not under the law, meaning under the threat of it, the consequences of it, because the law is smiling benignly. The law is justly and happily satisfied. The law is your friend. The law is your companion. 
It is not a huge spike-studded club about to descend upon you. It is not a huge weight hanging by a frayed strand about to crush you. It is not a huge gleaming scimitar about to cut you. It is your friend if you're under the grace of Jesus Christ. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. Now, I was the servant of many sinful habits. I was the servant of smoking, I remember, back in 1950, 51, 52, along in there. About 1953, God helped me to break that habit. And that habit has not been a part of my life from that time to this. And how thankful I am because I meet grown men who will actually cry, and there are people who know that they cannot break that habit. I have seen some of the most grotesque pictures in my life of hospital patients with one lung already removed, of hospital patients with the trachea actually removed from cancer, and lying in a hospital like a vegetable, unable to expel breath so that the power of speech is gone. And the nurse comes along and lights a cigarette and puts it in a plastic tube that enters the trachea below the place where they have removed the cancer so the individual can get the thrill of the smoke ingested into the lungs because the habit is so absolutely intense. It's just like a person hooked on drugs or anything else that they simply cannot live without it. They'd go into the uh, whatever, the DTs, like they say, delirious tremens or something like that in connection with alcoholism, whatever it is that is called a smoker's jag. Uh, the nerves would just be screaming and they just simply could not stand themselves. They would have a nervous breakdown without being provided with that cigarette. But I've seen that on some motion pictures that are constructed to try to keep people from smoking. And still you cannot tell kids they shouldn't do it. And how difficult it is to start. I've talked about that before, about how brave you've got to be when somebody dares you to take the first lungful and you turn every shade of the rainbow. You look like a green frog. You go and you'll barf someplace. You're sick. The whole world is whirling around. But you are determined, no matter how it hurts, how sick you get, how awful it tastes, how rotten it smells, you are going to learn to smoke because it makes you tough. It makes you old. You're 15. And everybody knows you're 15, but you're not really. In your own mind, you're 24. And the other kids who are 15 are thinking, boy, look at Teddy, he's really grown up all of a sudden. Yesterday he was only 15 and he didn't smoke, but today he's 15 and he does smoke. Wow! But they're not really thinking that. They're not really thinking that. You know why Jesus Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, do not pray as do the heathen or the publicans or the Pharisees, because he said they love to pray in public places or in their churches. For to be seen of men, verily, meaning truly, I say unto you, they have their reward. Now think about it. What is their reward? What is the laureate? What is the garland of the sprigs of the laurels they're wearing? What is the Nobel Prize? What is the medal? What is the inscribed certificate? What is the document? What is it? What's the thrill, the kick? What are they after? They're trying to impress other human beings. I've seen it all of my life. I see it on television. Some of these characters get on there and I have some words I could use. It wouldn't be kind. And I think a lot of them are frustrated actors and they will screw up their eyes like that and just shake their heads and just pray away in public. And I know they must be sitting there just, oh my, I'm a marvel. When they watch themselves pray 
and they're doing it out in public. And once in a while I get a letter, why don't you pray on your program? And I'll send them back a little explanation of why I don't pray in public, because Jesus said, don't do that, and maybe it'll help them understand. Now, of what value is the reward they receive? Jesus made that important on two occasions. He said, don't do your good alms or your good Christian deeds in public for to be seen of men, because verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When was the last time the limelight was shining on you and you had a chance to impress somebody? As a kid in high school, at the senior prom, as the valedictorian, the last time you made a perfect jump shot from 22 feet, when was it? You know, you were the goalie in the hockey team, you were the guy that made the touchdown, you were the quarterback, whenever it was. Uh, you were the kid in the old swimming hole that did the double black backflip with a half gainer or whatever. But whenever it was, there have been times in our lives when we've all had an opportunity when we thought others were looking, and this is my moment to impress them. We have done it. I did it in the military service with my uniform and, and so on. You try to impress people. Now, that feeling you got that you have a hard time remembering was it. That was the end of it. That's all there was. Christ said they have their reward. Now, would those same people that you impress, if you were going along the road here and you had a sudden collision, they were in the car coming this way and the car right behind you and the car coming the other way, and you're lying there with one leg with a compound fracture and a pool of blood under you in the highway, would those same people be the first ones to stop and just in their busy schedule just screech to a halt and just tenderly help you and call the fire department resuscitation squad or whatever and call the ambulance, call the police, be there with you, get you a doctor? Would they be the first person to invite you into your home, into their home, if your home burnt down or if you were destitute or poverty-stricken? would be the first person to help you if you lost all your clothing in a home fire and they'd come and show up with a suit of clothing for you. These people you impressed. Well, you know better than that. You know the people you impressed really weren't impressed, number one. They weren't impressed at all. As a matter of fact, many of them may have been sitting there saying, look at that idiot Pharisee making that long flowery prayer. He's got to be crazy if he thinks, I swallow that, I believe that. So they're not impressed at all. The only person really getting a kick out of it is the one doing it. I find it fascinating that Jesus said that about two or three times in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, they have their reward because of being able to impress someone. He said, we become the servants of sin. And when we are the servants of our human passions, our ego, our vanity, our appetites, we obey Satan the devil. We become his captive or his slave. But he said, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now, if we are free in God's church, if we are exercising spiritual or moral freedom, as well as enjoying our beautiful political freedom in the United States of America, why would we be so quick to give up moral freedom into the hands of someone else? I want to draw an analogy. Thomas Jefferson, believe it or not, though one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence and the third president of the United States, was, up until the moment of the Revolutionary War, completely loyal to King George. He was not in favor of the deputations of colonial rule, of the tertiary, quaternary, whatever, branches of that government, which was a despotic government overseas. He didn't like certain taxation, certain laws having to do with conscription, having to do with 
the, uh, I should say primarily, the economic or the socio-economic system imposed upon the colonies by England, because England at that time was treating our uh, first colonies just exactly the way she did under the British East India Company, uh, nations like India or the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan or many of the other possessions of the British Crown, which was a certain amount of plundering of the exploitation of her colonies, and of course the colonialists were suffering under that. So Jefferson wanted a certain amount of autonomy, and you can read many, many books, the library is filled with them, there are many, many biographies on Thomas Jefferson about his writings and the rich years of his life and the last 12 of them in Monticello when he wrote some of the greatest letters perhaps to then leaders of the government and the members of the Congress and so on while he was basically bereft of his wife who had died earlier and he was there uh, at Monticello and death was not too many years down the road. But Thomas Jefferson was loyal to the king. He had studied as I said the writings of some of the legal treatises that dealt with the Magna Carta. But let me ask you this. Since Thomas Jefferson was one of the revolutionaries, and the Revolutionary War was triggered by the attempt of King George to impose an absolute monarchical rule over the colonies of the United States, the emerging country, what if, as a signator to the Declaration of Independence, he had become, as the third president of the United States, an absolute monarch? Did you know that there are many letters written by Thomas Jefferson? Many meetings took place in which he was very concerned about the new government resulting from his own writings and his own signature on the Declaration of Independence, and that he had serious fears that George Washington may become a king. Thomas Jefferson and others like him thought that the first American president could very easily have been proclaimed a despot, a monarch, because he came in as a general of the armies, and Jefferson voiced those fears in writing not once but many times. Now think of my analogy, if you will. Is there a case in history where the dissidents who rose up in rebellion against an insufferable, impossible status quo became merely the proprietors of the new status quo and turned around in the tiresome exercise of the swinging pendulum of American political machinations to become the new despotic rulers and the new proprietors of a status quo which imposed autonomous rule, autocratic rule, on the new subjects who had joined with them under the banner of overthrowing a despotic status quo. Think about it for a minute. Is there a case in history where a man broke with any organization, political or spiritual, political or spiritual, because the leaders were wrong? Is there a case in history where any such individual had to actually break the shackles of a stifling form of church government to be able to preach doctrine freely, because the doctrines which he had proved were true? and which the leadership of that church had admitted were true, but said to him, I fear lest we should lose the support of our tithe payers, so we must not change this doctrine, but we must continue to preach the accepted doctrine that the people understand, and where this man was not a legitimate successor to the unbroken chain of spiritual command 
allegedly handed down from Peter to the present time, but in fact became a new despot exercising total autocratic control over a new status quo with an organization rigidly, brutally putting down what they called dissidents. It's an interesting analogy because there is a case in history where leaders of the United States of America could in their own right have become the head of a new perpetual absolute monarchy or a constitutional autocracy instead of a government that as this student of the Magna Carta had decided had at all times to be responsible to the courts that there had at all times to be before governmental imposition of new decisions upon the governed it had to seek the will of the majority and it had to be judged by its peers I think it's interesting to look at that analogy and you know, ask a few questions about it where it has to do with the Church of God let me give you a couple of questions with regard to whether or not we are ever at any time to give up that one part of liberty I've defined as moral liberty even within God's church let's turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans Romans 14 verse 1 let's ask what was church doctrine then and what is church doctrine now concerning lifestyle concerning such things as taste in clothing makeup hairstyles but it says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. In other words, not to take account of their weaknesses. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats herbs. Now, wait a minute. Is there room for difference of belief, difference of opinion, difference of conviction within God's church with regard to lifestyle, with regard to something so important as the calories that you eat? and the, uh, the kind of health that, that you must maintain? What if the spiritual leader was himself a student of health laws? What if the spiritual leader had himself investigated for many, many years concepts of fasting, concepts of, of the slow cooking of natural vegetables in certain type of cookware? What if the individual who was over the spiritual leadership of the church knew everything there was to know about the maintenance of physical health? and that what he knew was imposed upon the people in the church, even to what kind of cookery you ought to buy. Do you have room for a personal opinion? And can you voice that opinion, and can you express it? One believes that he may eat all things. Another who is wheat eats herbs. Weak, he eats herbs. We used to say, and we were wrong, as young, smart-aleck ministers, and there used to be some of those, I was one of them. Notice, brethren, it says, one who is weak. Sallow-faced, sunken-chested, namby-pamby, little old, weak, effeminate men. They're weak. They think I'll go around eating roots. There they are with their sack of grapes and vegetables. I'm a man. I got hair in my chest. No, I don't either. And I eat steaks. Steaks and potatoes. That's what y'all eat. Oh, we used to say that. We used to make sure that people in Bible studies really concentrated on the word weak because we didn't have any vegetarians. If we did, we drove them out. We got rid of them. We, we did not let those vegetarians have a moment's peace in that church because they knew that they were weak, and we made them feel weak. We looked at them like a bunch of weaklings. Now, you know, sometimes 
like the fellow was speaking before a group of dentists, he said he always had something for everybody. He used the word ain't to just drive some of these retired English teachers crazy because you said he, he said he really got them mad. But he said not as mad as he did some of the feminists and the women's lib advocates because he said he went through talking about macho images and every time he spoke about the human race, he said he. Or he said him. Or he talked about mankind. He didn't take time to put in womankind. And he would always say, man does this or he does that. And he even spoke of God. He did this and that. He said one time he was embraced by a woman who came up to him right after the speech and she said, listen, she said, every single time you gave out with this male chauvinistic macho image, you said he and male and everything else, and God is going to get you for it. Well, he was really taken aback. And she went on to say, because she didn't like it. And then he knew, of course, where the woman was coming from. So I don't think that there are those in the church who believe that God is female, but in any event, there are those who have attempted to rewrite a Bible which puts she in place of he, by the way, uh, believe it or not. Let him that eats despise not him that despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, God shall be, uh, is able to make him stand. He'll be holding up because God is able to make him stand. Now, here's the verse I wanted to come to. So, so absolutely important. One man, not God, talking about man, talking about private individuals, esteems one day above another. And this has to do with lucky or unlucky days. It has nothing to do with God's annual holy days, although it certainly could be included. Another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What an interesting passage of Scripture written by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. He that regards the day regards it to the Lord. He that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. It says, concluding this chapter, and I think it is very fascinating, He that doubts is condemned, judged, or damned, verse 23, if he eats, because he eats not of faith, faith of his own, as it explains in this chapter. His own conscience is the important thing. For whatsoever is not of faith, not of the faith of the leader, not of the faith of the majority, but of the faith of the individual, is sin. Two people can be sitting side by side at the same banquet, and one, if he eats something that is served, is sinning, even when it is pure, good foodstuffs which Christ himself would eat, and the other could eat it and is not sinning because God allows you, no, he doesn't, he insists that you exercise moral freedom, that you think and you judge and you come to a conviction and you make a decision and you as a private person reserve the right to be a free moral agent. Now, because God is interested in the construction, the development of righteous character, Anything which defiles your conscience, which you do knowingly, even if it is something in lifestyle which would be normally allowed to you, but if it hurts your conscience, what are you doing if you do it deliberately, but actually be spoiling your own conscience, deliberately doing something you feel deeply you shouldn't? That destroys character, and therefore to you, even if not to the other fellow, and if not in God's sight, but to you, it is a sin. Is there any part of the Bible that any more thoroughly, obviously, and perfectly upholds to us moral liberty? I want to conclude by reading that again and reading it exactly the way it is in verse 5. 
Let every man be fully persuaded. My margin has a little number two, and it says assured. That means to be convicted, to be convinced, to be assured or persuaded in his own mind. Now, I use that word continually. I own, well, I don't really, but I say that I do, my home. You know, the mortgage company owns it and they let me live there. But I own my home. I own my suit. Uh, that was my own car, or, or that's my own typewriter, or these are my glasses. Well, I also would say, well, in my own opinion, or now in my mind, I think, or I would say, I feel, or I think, or I perceive, or, or my conviction, or my opinion, or my thought on that is this. There is one part of me that no human being has ever been able to control. I stand before you as a convicted criminal in that regard. I am convicted. Even my father could not do it, and it drove him wild. No human being on this earth has ever been able to control my mind. I'll tell you something about my wife. She's feisty. I've tried it. I have tried to bring her around to what is the most obviously beautiful conviction on an issue or another in our 32 or 3 years of married life together, and I absolutely have been unable. She is a free moral agent. She has certain convictions and opinions. Now, someday, she knows I've already quit trying to try and change hers, and someday she's going to quit trying to change mine. But, but I'm, I'm waiting for that. I'm, like that. I'm like that guy that spoke before the dentist. We've been married all these many years, and we are going to fight it out to the bitter end. I mean, 50, 60 years, whatever God gives us. I'm just kidding, Cheryl. We know that. But anyway, I think it's an important illustration. I am emphasize again, let each man, each person, each individual, each woman, each boy, each girl, be fully persuaded, convinced, convicted, and assured in his own mind. Because, you see, I own it. So on this July 5th of 1986, after this tremendous outpouring of a celebration of liberty, I can thank God for liberty, for freedom, for the United States of America, for God's truth, for freedom in Christ, for the freedom of worship in the church and for the freedom and the liberty of my own conscience.